Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, On Ethics, Part 2 How then does it come about that men who talk as if we could stand outside all moralities and choose among them as a woman chooses a hat, nevertheless exhort us, and often in passionate tones, to make some one particular choice. They have a ready answer. Almost invariably, they recommend some code of ethics on the ground that it, and it alone, will preserve civilization, or the human race. What they seldom tell us is whether the preservation of the human race is itself a duty, or whether they expect us to aim at it on some other ground. Now, if it is a duty, then clearly those who exhort us to it are not themselves really in a moral vacuum, and do not seriously believe that we are in a moral vacuum. At the very least, they accept, and count on our accepting, one moral injunction. Their moral code is, admittedly, singularly poor in content. Its solitary command, compared with the richly articulated codes of Aristotle, Confucius, or Aquinas, suggests that it is a mere residuum. As the arts of certain savages suggest that they are the last vestige of a vanished civilization. But there is a profound difference between having a fanatical and narrow morality and having no morality at all. If they were really in a moral vacuum, whence could they have derived the idea of even a single duty? In order to evade the difficulty, it may be suggested that the preservation of our species is not a moral imperative, but an end prescribed by instinct. To this I reply, firstly, that it is very doubtful whether there is such an instinct, and secondly, that if there were, it would not do the work which those who invoke instinct in this context demand of it. Have we, in fact, such an instinct? We must here be careful about the meaning of the word. In English, the word instinct is often loosely used for what ought rather to be called appetite. Thus, we speak of the sexual instinct. Instinct, in this sense, means an impulse which appears in consciousness as desire and whose fulfillment is marked by pleasure. That we have no instinct, in this sense, to preserve our species seems to me self-evident. Desire is directed to the concrete. This woman. This plate of soup. This glass of beer. But the preservation of the species is a high abstraction which does not even enter the mind of unreflective people, and affects even cultured minds most at those times when they are least instinctive. But instinct is also, and more properly, used to mean behavior as if from knowledge. Thus, certain insects carry out complicated actions which have in fact the result that their eggs are hatched and their larvae nourished. And since, rightly or wrongly, we refuse to attribute conscious design and foreknowledge to the agent, we say that it is acted by instinct. What that means on the subjective side how the matter appears, if it appears at all, to the insect, I suppose we do not know. 
To say in this sense that we have an instinct to preserve the human race would be to say that we find ourselves compelled, we know not how, to perform acts which in fact, though that was not our purpose, tend to its preservation. This seems very unlikely. What are these acts? And if they exist, what is the purpose of urging us to preserve the race by adopting, or avoiding, Christian ethics? Had not the job better be left to instinct? Yet again, instinct may be used to denote those strong impulses which are, like the appetites, hard to deny, though they are not, like the appetites, directed to concrete physical pleasure. And this, I think, is what people really mean when they speak of an instinct to preserve the human race. They mean that we have a natural, unreflective, spontaneous impulse to do this, as we have to preserve our own offspring. And here, we are thrown back on the debatable evidence of introspection. I do not find that I have this impulse, and I do not see evidence that other men have it. Do not misunderstand me. I would not be thought a monster. I acknowledge the preservation of man as an end to which my own preservation and happiness are subordinate. What I deny is that that end has been prescribed to me by a powerful, spontaneous impulse. The truth seems to me to be that we have such an impulse to preserve our children and grandchildren, an impulse which progressively weakens as we carry our minds further and further into the abyss of future generations, and which, if left to its own spontaneous strength, soon dies out altogether. Let me ask anyone in this audience who is a father whether he has a spontaneous impulse to sacrifice his own son for the sake of the human species in general. I am not asking whether he would so sacrifice his son. I am asking whether, if he did so, he would be obeying a spontaneous impulse. Will not every father among you reply that if this sacrifice were demanded of him, and if he made it, he would do so, not in obedience to a natural impulse, but in hard-won defiance of it? Such an act, no less than the immolation of oneself, would be a triumph over nature. But let us leave that difficulty on one side. Let us suppose, for purposes of argument, that there really is an instinct, in whatever sense, to preserve civilization, or the human race. Our instincts are obviously in conflict. The satisfaction of one demands the denial of another. And obviously the instinct, if there is one, to preserve humanity is the one of all others whose satisfaction is likely to entail the greatest frustration of my remaining instincts. My hunger and thirst, my sexual desires, my family affections are all going to be interfered with. And remember, we are still supposed to be in the vacuum, outside all ethical systems. On what conceivable ground, in an ethical void, on the assumption that the preservation of the species is not a moral, but a merely instinctive end, can I be asked to gratify my instinct for the preservation of the species by adopting a moral code? Why should this instinct be preferred to all my others? It is certainly not my strongest. 
even if it were. Why should I not fight against it as a dipsomaniac, that is, an alcoholic, is exhorted to fight against his tyrannous desire? Why do my advisors assume from the very outset, without argument, that this instinct should be given a dictatorship in my soul? Let us not be cheated with words. It is no use to say that this is the deepest, or highest, or most fundamental, or noblest of my instincts. Such words either mean that it is my strongest instinct, which is false, and would be no reason for obeying it even if it were true, or else conceal a surreptitious reintroduction of the ethical. And in fact, the ethical has been reintroduced. Or more accurately, it has never really been banished. The moral vacuum was from the outset a mere figment. Those who expect us to adopt a moral code as a means to the preservation of the species have themselves already a moral code and tacitly assume that we have one, too. Their starting point is a purely moral maxim, that humanity ought to be preserved. The introduction of instinct is futile. If you do not arrange our instincts in a hierarchy of comparative dignity, it is idle to tell us to obey instinct, for the instincts are at war. If you do, then you are arranging them in obedience to a moral principle, passing an ethical judgment upon them. If instinct is your only standard, no instinct is to be preferred to another, for each of them will claim to be gratified at the expense of all the rest. Those who urge us to choose a moral code are already moralists. We may throw away the preposterous picture of a wholly unethical man confronted with a series of alternative codes and making his free choice between them. Nothing of the kind occurs. When a man is wholly unethical, he does not choose between ethical codes. And those who say they are choosing between ethical codes are already assuming a code. What, then, shall we say of the maxim which turns out to be present from the beginning, that humanity ought to be preserved? Where do we get it from? Or, to be more concrete, where do I get it from? Certainly I can point to no moment in time at which I first embraced it. It is, so far as I can make it out, a late and abstract generalization from all the moral teaching I have ever had. If I now wanted to find authority for it, I should have no need to appeal to my own religion. I could point to the confession of the righteous soul in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Quote, I have not slain men. I could find in the Babylonian hymn that he who meditates oppression will find his house overturned. I would find nearer home in the Elder Edda that, quote, Man is man's delight. I would find in Confucius that the people should first be multiplied, then enriched, and then instructed. If I wanted the spirit of all these precepts generalized, I could find in Locke that, quote, by the fundamental law of nature, man is to be preserved as much as possible. Thus, from my point of view, there is no particular mystery about this maxim. It is what I have been taught, explicitly and implicitly, by my nurse, my parents, my religion, 
by sages or poets from every culture of which I have any knowledge. To reach this maxim, I have no need to choose one ethical code among many and excogitate impossible motives for adopting it. The difficulty would be to find codes that contradict it, and when I had found them, they would turn out to be not radically different things, but codes in which the same principle is for some reason restricted or truncated, in which the preservation and perfection of man shrinks to that of the tribe, the class, or the family, or the nation. They could all be reached by mere subtraction from what seems to be the general code. They differ from it not as ox from man, but as dwarf from man, thus far as concerns myself. But where do those others get it from? those others who claim to be standing outside all ethical codes? Surely there is no doubt about the answer. They found it where I found it. They hold it by inheritance and training from the general, if not strictly universal, human tradition. They would never have reached their solitary injunction if they had really begun in an ethical vacuum. They have trusted the general human tradition at least to the extent of taking over from it one maxim. But of course, in that tradition, this maxim did not stand alone. I found beside it many other injunctions. Special duties to parents and elders. Special duties to my wife and child. Duties of good faith and veracity. Duties to the weak, the poor, and the desolate these latter not confined, as some think, to the Judaic Christian texts. And for me, again, there is no difficulty. I accept all these commands, all on the same authority. But there is surely a great difficulty for those who retain one and desire to drop the rest? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>